Hi, this is Sophie here. Welcome to episode six. Before we get started, I just wanted to share a quick heads up slash content warning. In this episode around the 10 minute mark, we have a brief discussion about a sexual assault that occurs to one of our characters in this episode's novel, The Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Then around the 40 minute mark, we touch on losing a child via this episode's beautiful letter. If you'd prefer not to listen to those bits, please do skip through. Otherwise, this is a conversation about hope and finding comfort and navigating change and loss, especially at Christmas. And of course, it's also a conversation about the solace and joy that reading and cooking can bring us. We really hope it resonates with you. Thank you for listening and on with the show. Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast by me, bibliotherapist, psychotherapist Jermaine Lees and food writer Sophie Hansen. We're two women who firmly believe that we shouldn't go too long or too far without something to eat and something to read. Hi Jermaine, thank you. I can't believe we're here up to episode six of this podcast project and I've just absolutely loved every single one. A reminder that the recipes, notes and links to the books and everything we discuss in these episodes are always available on our show notes. So please do subscribe to receive them in your inbox every time we release a new episode. And you can do that via um, via the show notes as well in your podcast app. And on another note, if you are enjoying um, something to eat and something to read, we'd be so grateful if you'd share with a friend <laughs> who might as well and perhaps leave us a little rating or review. This episode is brought to you by our own books, Jermaine, uh, Reading the Seasons by Jermaine and um, Sonia Sakalakis, and my book, In Good Company, which came out earlier this year. Yes, so Jermaine, where are we going today with our book? Well, we're actually going back in time uh, and heading to England during the late 1930s, where we're going to meet three generations of the Cazalet family in the first book of that series called The Light Years by Elizabeth Jane Howard. Okay, so I'll just give a little synopsis of the book. It's set over the course of two summers. Um, The extended family come back um, to this countryside home of the duchy and the brig, the the mother and the father of uh, the head of the family, at their country house called Home Place. Um, There are three sons and a daughter, Hugh and his wife Sybil and their children Polly and Simon and the new baby Wills. Edward is the second son who's married to Villy and their children Louise, Teddy and Lydia. And then Rupert is the third son married uh, to the quite young Zoe. His first wife, Isabel, died in childbirth, having their second child, Neville. And there's an older daughter, Clary. And then there's Rachel, the unmarried daughter who lives with her parents. And quite, um, it's quite useful at the very front of the book, there is a family tree. And there's also a family tree of all the servants as well, which is very handy. So because, yeah, you do get to know all the characters very, very well. And I've not done this, but Jermaine, you mentioned that um, you've delved into Elizabeth Jane Howard's life um, and it is a little bit uh, autobiographical, Mm. autobiographical, is that right? Yes. Yeah, I um, was fascinated by an article that Hilary Mantel wrote uh, in The Guardian a few years ago, actually after Elizabeth Jane Howard died, which I think was twenty. 14 or 2015 Uh, and I'll put that in the show notes as well because it's fascinating about how the undeserved recognition so many female writers have got obviously over Mm. all of time Mm. but Hilary Mantel was saying how she's 
one of the most undervalued female writers that she gets every student she has to read because she just does the small world. She just observes so beautifully. And mm. she was married to Kingsley Amos. Was she? And oh. Yeah, her third or oh, his second or third husband. And he, it was apparently a very bohemian household and he always had other writers come to visit and stay and she kept house and cooked for all the guests and uh, was also a stepmother to his three children, including Martin Amos, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so her writing had to happen in the middle of all the domestic responsibilities, uh, which is a very familiar tale nowadays, isn't it? But yes. sorry, the autobiographical part of this book or this series of books I listened to a Desert Island Discs from the 90s where she's interviewed and she said that um, her family were very similar to the Kazlets to the point where her father owned a timber mill like oh. um, the Brig does. And um, that what I've always found the fascinating about this book is her ability to get into the heads of all those adolescent and child characters. Yes. And um, she actually says that all those girls, the cousins, Louise, Clary and Polly, are all different aspects of her. So she's managed to kind of create this f- extended family that have got bits of her in all of them and bits of her parents. Um, so it, I sort of don't want to say too much because it gives too much of the story away about which characters her parents and which are her, yeah. but... I just will put those in the show notes, those links to those different interviews for anyone interested after reading it to then go mm. and hear or see uh, how much it mirrors that time. Um, and I think also one of the saddest things I read was that when she she was 90 when she died wow. and uh, everyone wrote in those obituaries that she was sort of known more for the turbulence of her personal life than for the that writing worked. that she Mm. Mm. Well, that is a shame and a a very unfortunately kind of common thing, isn't it, with a lot of um, female artists. Mm. So I think the best thing we can do in that case is um, read them. Yes. (laughs) Keep reading those neglected female authors. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So we're going to talk about the book, The Shape It Left On Us, obviously the food in it, and which is a big part of the novel. And then we're going to read a letter. Um, It's it's a challenging letter. It's a sad letter um, about the difficulties of getting through the festive season after significant losses and change and finding pockets of joy um, in this time when it's not Mm -hmm. always easy. Um, But to our book, so uh, uh, this is my choice, but actually it came to me a few years ago through you, Jermaine, you recommended it to me um, mm. a while ago and I remember, I'm not sure if it was you or someone else told me as well that it's uh, Nigella Lawson's um, Ultimate Comfort Read and I was like, oh, well, it's good enough for Nigella, it's good enough for me and I read it and um, <laughs> so I read it a few years ago and I guess the shape it left on me then was it was this big sort of beautiful romp of a book, lots of evocatively described meals, this amazing scenes in the larder and in the table and the beach picnics and rambling summer days in the English countryside and it sort of it felt quite idyllic and all these sort of massive cousins all together um but actually reading it again now I, I still enjoyed it very much 
and and I still got all of that, but I felt there was a a few darker threads throughout the book um, that mm. that really I don't know why now I think maybe it's been a funny year I'm not sure um, that that sort of stood out to me. Um, there was that terrible scene um, between Edward and his daughter Louise, which I just completely must have mm. read over too quickly, and it's really um, quite disturbing. Um, Lots of unhappy characters, the casual anti-Semitism, poor Rachel and her terrible back and her love for Sid, which she'll never fully realise. So I still really, really loved it. But um, I, it just, things kind of popped out to me that I hadn't kind of registered maybe on my first read. Um, what about yeah. you? What about the, sh- I mean, don't get me wrong, I really still did love it and I think it is a beautifully written book. I think Elizabeth Jane Howard is such a talent. And I love the way, as you say, she gets mm. into the minds of her, um, all the different, she just switches characters so swiftly but so um, cleverly, I think. She's moving around into yes. all these different um, head spaces that are also different with different needs and wants and insecurities. And so I thought it was, I just loved it. It just, like every time I bought, read a book again, and I want to talk to you at the end about this rereading mm. thing because I've got more thoughts on it. Yeah, it's just different every time. Yeah, and so interesting that you said you found it darker this time because I was exactly the same and I wondered as well uh, why that might be. And funnily enough, at the same time as rereading this, I went to the movies with a friend to see Mothering Sunday by Graham. It was a novella by Graham Mm -hmm. Swift that actually wrote about and Sonia and I wrote about in our book and my friend saw it was on with at the British Film Festival this year and so she said, oh, you should go, we, you know, we, we should go. And that book I adored. It's about a May, it's set in 1923 but also in this upper class British society but from the point of view of a maid and it's um, Mother's Day, Mothering Sunday and so all the families out to lunch and she has the afternoon off and she's having an affair with the son of one of the upper class families and they have this afternoon together and it changes her life in ways that when I read the book the first time was like it 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 sets her on a whole different course and it's amazing to think that you can you know you don't hear many stories of uh people in service then changing their lives and it's that kind of story but watching the movie was so incredible so I Anyone who loves these period movies, please see it. It's Colin Firth and Olivia Colman, to name oh, two wow. of the actors in it. Oh, it is just so beautifully done. But it is, I had forgotten how um, it is really a book about the loss after World War One, not the Roaring Twenties and Aren't We Lucky, but the empty houses of all those sons who died in the war and the grieving parents it really it really got to me and i wondered is it because we've we've just lived through a moment in history and it wasn't sending our sons off to war and it it but it's this moment where the whole world had to change and mm-hmm. respond the normal way of life ended and had to change and i wondered if there was just a bit more understanding or vulnerability because i think in the past and i've watched or read these kinds of books that's oh imagine if I lived in that time and how how awful 
And I feel like this year I wonder if we're a bit closer to knowing how awful life can be on that worldwide scale. Yeah, so it was just interesting timing to see that movie and to be lost in that world again Mm. because even though this book is set 10 years on, the echoes of World War One are so present because yeah, all Hugh the and Edward through. both mm. fought in the war. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and of course, and we're on the cloud of war. Of World War Two. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, no, no. I was the same, and I just felt that that cloud of war. But yeah, I just felt like it wasn't quite the delightful country romp that I first thought it was. I think, and that that scene where Edward basically molests his daughter was just so horrifying and and so unresolved as well I was quite it we never come back to it there's no ramifications and I guess that's just what life was back there you didn't talk about things back then um things were just sort of swept under the rug but yes like that scene with Louise and her father Edward and Edward you know he's the charismatic man who is a philanderer but that's Mm -hmm. so different then to what what is he thinking with Louise but you know treating her as an older woman not his daughter is horrifying um and then when you read more about Elizabeth Jane Howard it makes a bit more sense um, about what happened to her and the relationship she had with her father uh and as you say yes the way no one talked about Mm. all these things that were happening Mm. under and in these wealthy families Mm. But let's get on to the, the comfort elements, I guess, of this book, which, hmm. which there are many, um, because the theme, I guess, that we, we originally thought of this, this episode is comfort reading. Um, so what, what do you think about that? What elements of this do you find comforting, this book? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose part of a comfort read is also being remi- having difficult times normalized too isn't it or being reminded that um life is filled with light and dark and all those different shades um and I suppose the the comfort part for me is still returning to a whole different era um and a whole different world and different rules and different ways of um people relating to each other but the familiarity of all the emotional life Mm. of everyone um, I think I found it really comforting reading the children's adventures, I, the way she yeah. writes about those little kids and their imaginations yeah. uh, really, really got me. So, yes, if we go back to this idea of the comfort that also comes through the food writing, I think uh, tea, as we're both drinking mugs of yeah. tea now, <laughs> it, that is one thing that's so sad, isn't it, that tea is such a... Um, character in itself in this book I noticed like from the very first pages it almost sets up this uh, social status like there's that quote with the maids in the morning two pots of tea were to be made the dark brown one with stripes for the maids and the white minton now set out on a tray with its matching cups and saucers milk jug and sugar bowl for upstairs first however was their own scalding cup of strong Indian it was China for upstairs, which Emily said she couldn't even abide the smell of, let alone drink. And that just made me smile because um, it reminded me of my family in the UK uh, when I'd go and visit. He used to say, oh, so you like a builder's tea? And I just thought <laughs> that meant, yeah, I like strong tea. But now I sort of realise, oh, that might suggest something something else. But um, just 
uh, yeah, the different tea for upstairs and downstairs I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. What did you and notice the, about the tea? Well, yes, similar. Like that, and, and it's such a punctuation mark through the day, isn't it? You know, or stopping for tea mm. or elevenses or afternoon tea, or um, it, and it's such a sort of. There's so many traditions in this house at a home place. It's it's a, it's a place that's just steeped in all these funny rules. Like um, you mentioned um, about you know the cheese, like the that the duchy disapproves of cheese at night. You know all these things that you can and you can't have, um, and. I liked this, um, you had this quote in here, I don't know if, if I read it, the duchy spent a business-like yeah. hour, half hour with Mrs Cripps, who's the head cook. The duchy inspected the remains of a boiling boiling fowl that Mrs Cripps did not think could be stretched into rissoles for lunch, but Madam said that with an extra egg and more breadcrumbs it could be made to do so. They fought a regular battle over a cheese souffle. The duchy disapproved of a che- cooked cheese at night. And, yeah, how one of the maids has nightmares yeah, when what? she has cheese last thing. And apparently... Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I, like people in my in my family, it's like a running joke that if someone's an adult, obviously, like uncles, aunts, my dad, you know, were feeling a bit rusty um, or a bit dusty one in the morning, it was because they'd had too much cheese the night before. It was a euphemism, I think, for ah. having a, few, a bit much to drink, but um, <laughs> <laughs> which didn't happen often. But but apparently, um, strong hard cheese um, and aged cheese, particularly apparently, as well as preserved meats such as bacon, ham, and pepperoni, have naturally higher levels of the amino acid tyramine, which apparently makes us feel more alert, so you don't sleep very well. But ah. I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not too sure if that's true or not. I've never really tested it out in any kind of <laughs> quantity. But um, yeah, I I loved it. I mean, there's so much gold in this book in terms of food and so many pivotal pivotal moments as in all the books we've talked about really seem to happen around the table don't they or or in the anticipation of time around the table and as you say like um Mm. the kids especially the boys coming back from boarding school um it's always just sort of their treat dinners um and I loved that idea. Mm. And I, I went to boarding school as well and it was always for us, you know, you got to choose. Mum would always call up, you know, when you're home, what, what's your first dinner going to be? What would you like it to be? All that kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, it comes back to that idea of food as a love language, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. And I'm really curious then to hear more about how you found boarding school because um, it's it's not painted in a good light in uh, in this book, is it? And listening no. to that old Desert Island Disc interview, um, Elizabeth Jane Howard said she only lasted two terms at boarding school and I loved she described it. You can just imagine she's got that very upper crust British accent. Um, yeah. She described it as a deadly failure, one of those rather awful schools smelling of cottage pie and gym yeah. shoes. Um <laughs> Well, I loved it and I think it's a different time, you know, like my my school was, I just absolutely adored it and, um, you know, it was a Mm -hmm. choice sort of to go. But um, I think uh, those schools back then in England where everyone was just sent away at such a a young age, um, they sounded just absolutely, um, some of them just dreadful Um, and poor, is it Teddy or Simon who's just so worked up about going back to school that he actually thinks going to war would be Mm. preferable um so yeah teddy teddy and i I, i'm watching the crown with my son tom at the moment because he's really interested in that whole history and is it gormanston the Mm. school up in scotland where poor prince charles yes 
I mean, it's just um, horrendous. These poor kids, what they're yeah. subjected to. Um, no wonder that, you know, the idea of roast chicken and meringues as a treat dinner is um, just something to hang on to all term till they can get home. <laughs> I know, or the cold salmon and mayonnaise and hot chocolate souffle that's, um, oh, that one, that's Teddy's, isn't it? And how the girls are so jealous that the boys get both to go to school and um, get these treat dinners and that, that they've, they get they, their education is not seen as important. And, yeah, that, that was a really strong thread for me this time is actually the state of um, girls and women mm. at that time. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, Villy, who's Edward's wife, having to give up her career as a dancer mm. um, when she married and, you know, there's so much sacrifice that these women make, isn't there, or, mm. and, and no control over their bodies, you know, unwanted pregnancies or um, the fear of yeah. pregnancy, all these sorts of things. Um, it, and it's really not that long ago if you think about it. Um, we've, we've thankfully we've still got a long way to go, but there's been so much change. But just one other thing I was thinking about, the being sent away and thinking about some of my favorite kind of English books of that time. Kids are just always being sent away, aren't they? Like, um, you know, there's the yeah. Enid Blyton's are always being sent away to school. But then I was thinking of like the secret garden, Tom's midnight garden, all these other ones where yeah. someone's sick and yeah. people are being sent away. Um, yeah. It's this fascination, isn't it? Of, of, of going, you know, these children sort of being bundled off somewhere and um, in, because someone's, ill or whatever I just think that's quite interesting too yeah that is yes that keeping the children away and even um with all the radio announcements from Chamberlain about uh whether there'll be war mm. and the decisions about oh the children should do this and these teenage boys are sitting there imagining that if there's war we'll probably have to go and fight in it yet they're also also being so sheltered and uh that that really stood out to me this time as well. But um, it was interesting, though, that Rachel got to go to boarding school being the yeah. generation before because she may has that she can't eat walnut cake because it reminds her of homesickness because the duchy would take her for tea and walnut cake before returning to school. And she to, the, to that day, you know, she, she still couldn't bear the walnut cake. I thought, what was your treat dinner then or special sending off um. meal? I I think it's it's not particularly um, groundbreaking, but it was Mum's roast roast lamb, which was always my absolute favourite, and probably oh. rice pudding for dessert. And I think it's yep. it's just that idea of walking in the door and smelling that roast lamb, which is just the best smell ever. Um, what about you? I was actually going to mm. ask you because I was really interested in that that idea of Rachel who cannot eat walnut cake because it reminds her of that last meal before she was sort of taken off to the train to go to school is there anything any food like that that leaves a sort of triggers something and that you can't actually enjoy the flavor of it because of the emotions that it, it it's bound up in oh interestingly for me that only comes from foods that or well, not that I've had food poisoning from but mm -hmm. I remember <laughs> I cannot eat corn because as a child I once had corn on the cob for dinner and it wasn't food poisoning, it just was a gastro bug, but it's all I could, yeah. you know, remember with that corn and it made me sick, that kind of feeling of, yeah, I can't I can't bear that from sickness. But that was actually the other thing that stood out for me um, with the food this time is how careful 
they had to be around the thought of food going off and um, yeah. food poisoning and um, even like the the involvement of the duchy with the food, deciding how to preserve the food for the longest mm. or, yeah, the wreck of the salmon was inspected. It would not stretch to being served cold again with salad. It was to be turned into croquettes for dinner. I thought that, yeah, it was interesting. But then the um, Clary, you know, who's got a stepmom because her mother died in childbirth with her brother uh, and she hates Zoe and Zoe has Zoe's what she's 22 I think or something isn't she and she's got no interest in being a mother yeah and Clary imagines um Zoe will die from eating potted meat in a heat wave known to kill you according to the duchy (laughs) um and there were two thoughts I had about that uh the first one was remembering my mother-in-law always telling me the story of her grandmother who cooked a custard pie for her grandfather's lunch one day and he went off to work and it had gone off and um he died of food poisoning oh and my gosh I just I remember at the time just finding that completely overwhelming the thought of yeah food going off that you cooked and then that leading to death was just yeah just sort of don't think about that so much these days and um oh my goodness no yeah that's huge isn't it um yeah and the management of that much food without refrigeration without mm. a huge walk-in call room is I mean that in itself is an incredible job and I remember um I love this 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 um Rachel goes into the larder to get something and and remember this is set in summer because they're all there for the summer holidays so it's it's hot and um and she said that Elizabeth Jane Howard writes the larder was cool and rather dark with a window covered with fine zinc mesh in front of which hung two heavily infested flypapers food in every stage of its life lay on the long marble slab the remains of a joint under a cage made of muslin pieces of rice puddings and blancmange in kitchen plates um junket setting in a cut glass bowl old crazed discolored jugs filled with gravy and stock stewed prunes in a pudding basin and in the coldest place beneath the window the huge silvery salmon its eye torpid from recent poaching lay like a grounded zeppelin the fruit basket was on the slate floor the paper that lined it red and magenta with juice Gosh, she writes well, doesn't she? I can just imagine standing in that larder and all the smells and the colours and that Mm. description of the salmon. Um, Yeah, I think think not many people can set that scene around food and the table as well as she does. Yeah. No, it's right. It makes it so you realise how difficult it would have been to be a cook in one of those houses. Uh, I'm not not surprised. But the, the working out. Yeah, if I was Mrs. Cripps at a certain point, I think I might have just thrown my apron onto the floor and stormed out. I mean, she had an impossible job, didn't she? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, I I know. And on top of that, she didn't even really get to make choices because the duchy would come in with her lists yes. and her ideas for the meals. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, and then it's just constant, isn't it? And then the beach picnics and then they're coming back again and then there's got to be, you know, afternoon tea put out. And, um, yeah, so it's just another world of class and ritual, I guess, um, and particularly in that Yes. 
Yeah, and and that's right. It's what they do so well. Like even just the list of those foods just creates that whole picture of who they are as people. Like even the scenes with Mrs. Cripps where Elizabeth Jane Howard just lists the food she has um, preparing, like the beach picnic sandwiches with hard-boiled eggs, sardines, cheese, and her own potted ham with seed cake and flapjacks and bananas for pudding. Um, which takes you back to the uh, Clary wishing her stepmother mm. dead from eating potted ham in a heat wave. Um, oh, not potted ham, potted meat. Tell me, what actually is potted well, ham? I mean, I think it's preserved ham. I think at its worst it's something like spam, you know, so pork oh, cooked, cooked yeah. in its own fat or with extra fat maybe in a sort of pressure cooker situation and sealed in tins and then it's preserved at room temperature. And I think at its best or better, a sort of a reette situation. <laughs> so I feel like it's kind of a, you know, cooked ham, shredded. Um, I've made it before and I've mixed with a bit of vinegar, herbs, pepper, and then you press it into ramekins and seal it with a layer of clarified butter. Um, and it's sort of like a uh-huh. pate, that kind of thing, um, a kind of rough country style pate. Um, and it's really delicious right. with cornichons and toasts and uh, actually super yummy and I'm going to put a recipe for that in the show notes um but yeah I think that idea of potted ham makes yeah, let's me, imagine that. Oh, it doesn't sound very nice well but let's it is imagine nice. Mrs. Cripps' version is yours yes I think so I think it probably would be but it's probably also one of those things that shouldn't be kept out um you know in in warm weather for too long because um <laughs> it could just get quite dangerous um if, if it was but yeah I think um there's lots of lovely um yeah, I just enjoy the meals and I enjoy um, the, all the rules about which children were allowed to come up and sit at the big table or they have to sit up in the landing and eat their dinner in the nursery. It's just another world, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah, teaching the children to be adults at the dinner table and uh, yeah. the Dutchie's idea of two allowed at lunchtime yeah. <laughs> and the lucky dip about which two children would get to join the, the grown-up table. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I am... Um, I was going to say, I think I hadn't noticed that on my first reading of this years ago, I hadn't noticed the um, the duchy as much as a bigger, I didn't remember her having as big a role as when I read it this time. And I, I wonder if this is a bit of ageing as well, I don't know. But the, the, what really struck me this time was when she's thinking about whether or not they are going to go back to war. She There's this quote I've got here that I pulled out. You know, where she's thinking to herself, she was of a generation and sex whose opinions had never been sought for anything more serious than children's ailments or other housewifely preoccupations. But this was not to say that she didn't have them. And then a bit later, she thinks, would any woman in her right mind choose to have her sons go to France as Edward and Hugh had done last time? She had never expected either of them to come back, had lived in an agony of secret tension those four and a half years when it seemed everybody else's sons were killed or shattered rage at the horrible lunacy of it all this time surely edward was too old to go but they would take rupert and if it went on long enough teddy the old eldest grandson uh, it just blew my mind to think at the reality mm. of you know we both have sons we both have teenage mm. sons almost now how how do you live for four and a half years not knowing if they're going to they're fighting at war like it it just know. really brought it home to me a lot more strongly and not only does she have to live through her son, she's thinking, I might have to live through my grandson going now. Mm, mm. I, yeah, I don't know how they did it. And I um, I think 
it really comes back to what you said at the beginning, why this is in its way a comfort read, because it does help us process um, that, that idea that even though horrendous things have happened and might happen again and might be happening, there is this con- constancy of family and, and home place and it's weird, funny traditions mm. um, and all these sorts of things mm. that, that just continue on and that your family is going to be there and all those relationships, no matter what blues you might have, um, are still there for you. And I think maybe that's mm. the comfort. Perhaps that is. And as you say, we've all gone through a funny year or a funny two years and it's still things are, are tricky. Maybe that's what we have to take from this is that idea of um, mm. finding comfort in, in tradition and family and coming back together and, yeah, being together when we can yeah. maybe. And eating. And eating. <laughs> eating well, yeah. Eating these amazing things. Blamange and junket um, and things. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm um, just thinking about the comment about the tea earlier. I It's the other thing that made me laugh at the end of that realizing oh my god how does she live like that where understanding the seriousness of her thoughts because uh her tea had gone cold (laughs) like the last line of that paragraph was um yeah the the whole scene ends with her tea was now cold (laughs) and um that yeah I I think um you're right and it reminded me when you were just saying that about life going on and traditions and the importance of that as comfort that at the end of World War One, uh, bibliotherapy was—I mean, bibliotherapy, as we know, has been around since books began. But at the end of World War One, they started in psychiatric hospitals giving books to uh, shell-shocked soldiers. I've always loved this story. Mm. And the most common book given, well, common books given, were Jane Austen novels. Oh. Uh, and they think it's because those soldiers lives were so the world had stopped making any kind of normal sense all those traditions and rituals had gone and Jane Austen books were able to put them back together because they were books that were all about society's rules and they would all there would be no nasty shocks no um and people would behave as they were meant to behave and it was a way of kind of building up a, a safer world for them again um that's so interesting uh, that's always Mm. and actually um really yeah that is and I I was going to talk about a Jane Austen book um because I've been I was listening to a great podcast this week called You're Booked um by Daisy Buchanan I don't know I love that yeah yeah and she interviewed Miranda Cowley Heller who wrote Paper Palace the Paper Palace which I've just Mm. finished and I enjoy Oh, it's so good. It's so, so good. And actually the food in that is maybe we could do it for another episode because food plays a really interesting role in that book as Uh well. But Miranda talks, they talk a lot about actually the shape that books leave on on you at different times because the premise of this podcast is to go back through these authors' bookshelves and go through the Mm. pivotal moments in terms of books in their life. Um, And she talks about Pride and Prejudice and how she rereads that book quite a lot and every time she reads it it leaves her feeling the same as when she first read it when she was 11 years old um but that's the only yeah. book that does that for her every other book when she rereads it, it it changes for her because she's a different person when she reads it each time and I I wondered because uh-huh. we've talked about rereading books before for comfort 
and and how interestingly the light years had such different shape on me the two times I've read it in within the shape of about time of about four or five mm-hmm. years um are there any books that are like that for you that will always have the same shape no matter when you read it and what stage you are in your life so Pride and Prejudice for Miranda was um, was one of those but I don't know if I have one that's so solid in my in my headspace perhaps right I'm thinking actually Persuasion by Jane Austen for me is a bit like that and funnily enough we're talking about Jane Austen because also Elizabeth Jane Howard said that Austen taught her more than her mother did oh really (laughs) so she was yeah (laughs) speaking of how Jane Austen gives us all these life lessons but yeah I think Persuasion I wonder if it's those books you read at a really pivotal time in your coming of age or Mm. working out who you are. And uh, that book always, even when I read it now, there's a line Anne utters about she hopes she'd outlive the age of blushing but the age of emotion she had not. And I was a real blusher. I probably still am a real blusher but as an adolescent it was so, I was so, so, so self-conscious of blushing Mm -hmm. and I remember reading that at probably 15 or 16 and just thinking, oh, it's okay, you know, and Anne was a blusher as well and she gets the love of her life and uh, so it's, I read that and it still reminds me of that feeling of being really self-conscious and mm, um, mm. and lost, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, I think I, I agree I love persuasion as well. It's something about Jane Austen, isn't it? We we will always, always love her. Um, before we move on to our letter, mm. is there anything else that you wanted to say about the light years? Yeah, actually the shape it left on me the first time was much more around uh, Hugh and his relation, his role as a father, his relationship with Polly, which I just thought was so beautiful that mm. he uh, he's just so honest, wasn't he, and such a soft, gentle, a beautiful man. character. And, well, yeah so different to Edward anyway mm. as Polly um was so highly anxious about uh about death and something happening to people she loved and uh there's my favorite line then and it still was when I reread it it still makes me really cry actually where um they're having this conversation about you know we where Hugh says I don't know if there's going to be another war and uh and Polly says so the rest of the time, just carry on as usual. That's what ordinary life is, isn't it? Carrying on as usual. Does that sound boring to you? That's Hugh saying that to her. And then Polly says, it sounds it, but when you're in it, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as he's leaving the room, she calls out to him, Dad, do you know what I love about you best? Your doubtfulness, all the things you don't know. As he reached the door, she called, it really makes me admire you. And still just... Really, that just touches me so much that doubtfulness, admitting to your doubtfulness is actually the wisest thing we can do mm. for ourselves and, and particularly for our children doing it during a, a really difficult time, I think. I think so, especially in that upper class of upper crust English world where probably not many men would admit that they don't know something or would really lean into that kind of mm. um, that unknowing um unknowingness yeah I thought that relationship was really beautiful and Hugh and Sybil that husband and wife who were always just falling over Mm. themselves to 
you know, be thoughtful to the other person, <laughs> but actually, yeah, never quite honest about what each other, what they actually wanted. But, um, yeah, they were, wanted, they were beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Before we go to our letter, yeah. I just want to read one last description of food because I, I just, I love it. This, they say, um, she says, they all had dinner, 14 of them around the immense three pedestal table extended to it, to its uttermost. And even then they were crammed around it. They ate four roast chickens, bread sauce, mashed potato and runner beans, followed by plum tort and what the Dutchie called shape, blamange. And I just love this idea of pudding blancmange, which I've always been kind of fascinated by, um, called shape, a pudding called shape. I thought that was just gorgeous. Yes, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, on that note, shall we um, shift gears a little bit and move towards our letter? But yes. before we do that, we might hear from Christy, our wonderful producer, who's going to share a comfort read, um, and then we'll jump back to our letter. Thanks, Christy. Sometimes be unsuspecting where we find comfort. And when I finished the final page of A Fortunate Life by A.B. or Albert Barnett Facey, I felt lots of different emotions and comfort was definitely one. Published in 1981, it chronicles Albert's early life in Western Australia and starting work so young in some pretty tough conditions. But there was always a silver lining for our author. To quote, I told him that I had it first when I had to go out to work so young, but I was used to it now and I didn't feel so lonely. There were always the birds and the animals in the bush. They are like music to me. The book leads you through his incredible experiences as a private during the Gallipoli campaign of World War I and his return to life in Australia after the war. It's a book not just for adults. I know it's been used in the classroom as well. It documents hardship, loss, friendship and love. The book was published nine months before Albert's death and following its publication, Albert became a bit of a celebrity in Australia. He was quoted as saying he had no idea what all the fuss was about. Typical of someone who led a fortunate but extraordinary life. In an interview after the book was published, Albert was asked where the name of the book originated and he replied, I called it a fortunate life because I truly believe that is what I had. I found comfort in that after all that he'd been through and if you read the book, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Comfort that in the tough, you can still have love. In poverty and hardship, we can still feel rich in other ways from friendship to company and opportunity. Whatever this festive season means to you and how it makes you feel, I hope you find comfort too. Thanks, Christy. We're ready for our letter now. And this month's letter is um, well, it's very sad, but it's also quite poignant and I think um, will resonate with people who struggle to get through the festive season after um, any kind of significant loss or, or changes in life and I think Jeanette Winterson's book has 
as, as you know, it speaks to that really well. So much so that I've noticed we've had quite a few comments um, or people have said how it's that book and our episode helped them rethink about their intentions around Christmas. And there was one on Instagram the other day, I thought it was so beautiful, of um, a woman who has been widowed for the last 10 years and it made her think, what will I do differently? Maybe I don't have to try and re- hold on to the old way of doing things and I can create my new you know, new traditions now. And uh, I found that really moving and that reminder that it doesn't have to be the same every year and actually it can't be because nothing stays the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so and, and, and this letter is sort of asking a similar kind of question I think so do you want to read it out yeah yep definitely okay hi Sophie and Jermaine I'm loving your podcast thank you I'm hoping you can suggest something to eat and something to read leading up to Christmas for me I'm in Melbourne and in the past 18 months we have been locked down for a total of 260 days over a year in my life I have had to adapt and change many times as things did not go as as planned or dreamed. I am a sole parent and my 18 and 50 year old son's dad lives overseas. That's okay. One good parent is enough and this is better for us. My daughter died almost eight years ago on her 16th birthday, which is literally seven days before Christmas. My eldest is 25 and he has moved out of home. I actually feel very blessed despite this loss and I'm just happy to be here. I had breast cancer eight years ago but now I'm fine. I've lost both of my sons academically in this past 18 months and every day has been a challenge to support the mental health, their mental health. I find my solace in healthy food, good books, my beautiful dog, my healthy children, exercise, my vegetable garden and I am so grateful to be alive and sometimes fabulous. My simple life is enough. My simple life is enough. My struggle is Christmas. As Jermaine said in episode five, Christmas changes as your children get older. I have reserved Jeanette Winterson's book, Christmas Days, at my library, and I can't wait to read it. But with children this age, they don't care about a tree, decorations, or anything at all. For the past few years, I have done all the work myself and hoping they would notice something. But after all this time, I don't feel like doing anything at all. I have no family in Melbourne. It will just be me and my three sons, but it will be a lot of work and I can't get the energy to do anything. I know I would regret that too. You did give some suggestions in episode five, but is there anything else you can suggest to get me going? Thank you for reading my letter if you've got this far from a languishing listener who lives in hope and gratitude every day for for a happier world full of love, good food and good books. Oh, yeah, it's really um, moving, isn't it? Mm. And yeah, I it really got me thinking about um, what comfort reads can really be. And while we just have been talking about the light years, maybe being comfort because it's a reminder of light and dark. Sometimes mm. I also think we need to be able to give ourselves childlike comfort where the world is a really safe place and nothing awful happens. And so for this letter writer, I've gone for a um, graphic novel, a completely different genre, a genre that I think is often quite underestimated by adults, yet sometimes can be great medicine. Have you really ever got into the graphic novel? No, not at all. I mean, my son, Tom, Mm. loves them. And so I look at them with him sometimes, but as an adult, um, not at all. I mean, I'm open to it, so I'm interested to hear about this one. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, no, it's a genre I didn't really ever think of because I didn't even get into it as a teenager either and I never, I just never really noticed them and then when I was being trained in bibliotherapy with the School of Life, the uh, London bibliotherapists were made me, well, made me get prescribed for me a few graphic novels and I was amazed how powerful they are actually, both for, I mean, this is purely a comfort read, but I think graphic novels when you're reading about something traumatic can be an easier way to do it as well with few words and and pictures. It's a whole different way of processing and absorbing mm. information. But mm. but that's um, the book I've prescribed for this letter writer is um, actually all about a dog because I was thrilled to read in her letter that she has a dog. Mm. I mean, I've always thought dogs are wonderful for teenagers uh, and they can really absorb all that teen angst and pain and they always adore the teenagers and, that, you know, I can't count how many times other mums tell me how they've walked in on their teens, you know, crying into their dog's fur or confiding mm. the latest dramas in and how helpful they are. But I think um, we underestimate how helpful um, dogs can be for the teen mums as well, you know, when you feel you're a bit redundant, you're not as needed. Uh, you know, those dogs are amazing at making you feel like the most amazing loved oh. person in the, the room. Yeah, unconditional so, um, love, isn't it? No. Like it's just, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think we, we get so much so much comfort from our dogs, don't we? Yes, it's pure love, isn't it? So I'm describing a book called Plum Dog and it's by Emma Chichester-Clark who is a children's book illustrator and I first came across her because she wrote a series of books called Lily and the Blue Kangaroo um, that a friend in, in the UK actually sent to me when Lily, my Lily, was born and we just loved her drawings because they're just colourful and bright and so, so detailed. And then she wrote this diary of her dog called Plum and because apparently she found him so full of expression she just couldn't help but want to draw him and write down all these thoughts and there's this quote she says about dogs there is something about a dog that is very easy to identify with perhaps more than any other animal maybe it's because they're entirely honest refreshingly transparent they can't help it they express all their feelings through their eyes their ears drooping alert flying in the breeze their tails of course and their body language that is instantly readable they do the things that we would do if we didn't have such impeccable manners. They howl, they wag, forgive and adore, and they enjoy everything as much as they can. And um, this book is just a beautiful reminder of those moments of joy that can be found in the everyday, which the writer's already discovered for herself, as she, as she says. But given this time of year, um, it's not the everyday for her with, you know, anniversaries and um and also just the general expectations of uh, Christmas. So I thought it might be helpful to read something that is completely outside of the mm. non-ordinary time of year and return to the simple pleasures. And um, I just hope she gets lost in the magic of entering Plum's consciousness. So like one one quote, obviously I can't show her on the photos. I'll put a picture up on Instagram. But one um, quote, Wednesday the 25th of September, I have fallen in love with the yellow rug in the bathroom. It's just the thing for gliding and general malarking. <laughs> Gorgeous. Oh, I'm really looking forward to looking at this book. Thank you, Jermaine. I think um, 
I walk with my dog George most mornings and the joy I get from watching him do his general malarking um, is enormous. And I <laughs> was listening to Ricky Gervais actually on a podcast not too long ago. Um, he was talking about Afterlife. Have you watched that show? It's a series. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Me yeah. too. I, God, I love that show. And the, the role the dog mm. plays in that show mm. um, is quite special. It really brings him back from the dead, doesn't doesn't yeah. it, that dog? and taking yeah. his walks and yeah, playing the beach. Yeah, his life more time. He does. And Ricky was saying in real life, he was saying, mm. I take, there's no greater joy in my life than watching my, do- my dog run around and be silly and have a good time at the beach or at the park. And, and I think, yeah, it's true, yeah. isn't it? Because there's just no matter, you know, <laughs> what happens in a dog's life, they're always going to, and it's a new day, there's always a new thing to be excited about. So I think yeah. um, there's so much we can take from that, isn't there? That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. And I think it's lovely, as you say, to take it out of the Christmas because there is a lot of expectation at this time of year to be happy all the time and to feel the spirit. And mm. and some of the messages I've been reading on our Instagram page about our episode five, which was our Christmas episode, was people saying, I haven't quite felt it yet. I'm waiting for this festive feeling to get into my blood and, you know, and some people said, which was lovely, that our episode and the, the idea of these little rituals and moments that we can grab mm. for ourselves during December helped and that made me really happy. But my recommendation um, is for a Christmassy lunch because I feel like our writer still wants to have a nice Christmas and still wants to get her boys excited about this time of year, even though um, I can't imagine how difficult it must be um, with the with the memory of her her daughter. Mm. Um, I'm just sending you so much love if you're listening because I can't imagine you've been through so much and I think it sounds like you just have the most amazing attitude to mm. moving forward. But what I was thinking, I'm taking some inspiration from Mrs. Cripps in the light years and ah. um, <laughs> and we're going to poach a salmon and we're going to serve it with peas and new potatoes, which was one of her meals. And then we're going to have summer pudding with raspberries yep. and cream for dessert. And the salmon, because I think it's, for us, it's our Christmas lunch every year. It's what mum's yep. got a big salmon kettle and it, it really is only used once a year and it gets pulled from the depths of the the cupboard um and it's actually the <laughs> easiest thing and you can if it's if, if you're not a big number you just get a smaller piece and you can um sit it in a big deep baking tray and, and poach it and really you just bring it up to the boil pop the meat the, the fish in with some aromatics and I'll put the recipe in the show notes and then just turn the heater off and leave it leave it there for 10 minutes or until whenever it's cooked and that's it it's done there's no sticking your head in a hot oven there's no sweating there's no heating up the kitchen it's just so beautiful and elegant and then I think a really beautiful we're going to make a potato salad with with lots of fresh herbs and and fresh peas and some crunchy um toasted almonds and it's going to be really delicious and um simple and not too much and I was thinking when I think of not too much I've been thinking about this idea of nursery food um and I think I've mentioned before my deep and abiding love of nursery food and um when yeah. I was thinking about you, our letter writer, I was thinking about Laurie Colwyn and I, I'd love you to read her book, Home Cooking, if you haven't already, and I've mentioned it already on this podcast. But there's a she does a whole chapter on nursery food and she writes, when life is hard and the day has been long, the ideal dinner is not four perfect courses, but rather something comforting and savoury, easy in the digestion, something that makes us, makes us feel, if even for a minute, that one is safe. 
And she goes on to say, dishes such as mm. shepherd's pie and chicken soup are a kind of edible therapy. I loved that line. Um, so yeah. we've got our salmon and our beautiful, fresh, bright, crunchy potato and pea salad. And then for dessert, I think it's got to be a summer pudding. I don't know. I know some people don't love bread and desserts, <laughs> but I think a, and because they're quite small, they can be quite small, the summer pudding. So it doesn't have to be this huge, big, enormous pudding that you're going to be feeling daunted by how we're going to get through this. A beautiful, light summer pudding, bright red. You could put a little mountain of um, raspberries on top and a few little mint leaves for colour and serve it with a bowl of cream or ice cream from the fridge. I feel like that's a really delicious, mm. simple meal that um, I hope you and your boys are going to love. What do you think? Does that mm. sound and I, good to you? Uh, <laughs> it sounds delicious because, you know, it's something festive in that it's not just the usual lunch but it's also not buying into the whole doing it the way all the Hallmark mm. Christmas special movies do or that, you know, that there's some, hopefully there's a bit of a new beginning or a new tradition forming or I a hope new so. doorway into Christmas. Yeah, I love this idea of doorway. And I think also mm-hmm. what I would say to you, our writer, is if you can, I'm not sure if your boys are interested in cooking at all, but um, that summer pudding is actually quite a fun thing to make. You know, you, you have to cut the, the crusts off your white bread and and make a little puzzle in the bowl and fit all the bits in together and then pile mm-hmm. in the berries. And um, so maybe it would be really lovely if you could on Christmas morning um, cook together perhaps and put some music on and just be in the kitchen doing quite simple tasks but um, making this meal together. That might be a nice thing to get them yeah. kind of with you uh, um, on this little Christmas journey. So I hope that helps and um, thank you for writing into us mm. and I'm wishing you a very happy Christmas even though, yeah, it's not an easy time always. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I mm. feel like on that note oh. of hope, hopefully a note of hope we're ending on, <laughs> I feel like we have come to the end of this episode and the end of mm. um something to eat and something to read for this year. Um, we'll be definitely back in the new year with lots of new books and episodes. <laughs> but, yeah, it's been what a what a lovely little ride this has been yeah. in the last few months, Jermaine. Thank you so much for coming along with me. Oh, I know. It's been so much fun, you know, having a, a good excuse to have to talk about a book that we've both read, uh, <laughs> you know, for legitimate work reasons. <laughs> I know. I did. I said to my book club the other night, um, because we've got our books every two weeks that we're reading and then I'm in my book club as well. So is there any chance we can sync our books? Can we just all read the something to read, something to read books? But right now we've got Jonathan Franzen's new book, Crossroads, which is a whopper. Oh, that's a big one. I know. So that's yes. that's going to be my summer read as well as uh, um, <laughs> our next book, which if anyone's re- listening and, and reading along yeah. with us, it's Crying in H Mart, I believe. Is that That's our next one by Michelle yes. Downer. Yeah. Yeah, and and actually, if, if you're still listening, our writer, it, that's also about um, the role of food and grief and um, memory and all those things. Mm. And it's um, I'm halfway through it, and I, it's beautiful. I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, yeah, please read it along with us if you guys um, like doing that. So you can um, yeah follow along. No, it's been a lo- and it's just so lovely to hear from people too, isn't it? And hear what they think of the books that we're also reading or what's what struck a chord because you know what strikes a chord is different for all of us depending on what we're all living and going through so it's been a real privilege to 
Oh, I'm so grateful that you suggested this idea, Sophie, and also <laughs> privileged to look into other people's lives and hear their own stories too. It's, uh, it's really For wonderful. sure. For sure. Well, so what do we have a little bit of last minute admin, I guess, Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Please um, share, subscribe, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, and, Jermaine, do you want to talk about the – Writer's letters. Yes, yes. But don't forget that every letter writer receives a whole case of wine from single vineyard sellers, which is just huge. Mm. So find our email addresses um, there in the show notes or um, just at – send us a direct message at Instagram. We're at something to eat underscore something to read. Um, and anyone who subscribes to this podcast or our Instagram page, Single Vineyard Sellers offering 20% discount on any purchase at the checkout, um, singlevineyards.com. Just type in the code S-T-E-S-T-R 20. So something to eat, something to read, 20. That's it, I think. Oh, thank you so much, Christy Very Smith great. and Jones for our beautiful, beautiful music. Um, yeah. And we will be in your ears next year. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yes. Happy Christmas and, and um, Happy New Year, Sophie. And to you. Thanks, Jermaine. See you guys next year. Bye. Bye. Sometimes I get to thinking I ought to take up drinking just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way Just a small town woman Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world Sometimes when I wake up in the morning My mind, it starts to wander Wanting to roam its way right out of my head And I get to thinking about that man I wonder if he's headed south again Or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led But I am a wandering girl I'm just a small town woman
I want to take up drinking, self-medicate you right off of my mind. Well, maybe I could take some morphine. God knows it's pain relief I need. It works better than waiting for some holy sign. But I ain't a medicating girl. I'm just a small town woman. Just a small town lady trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world. I'm just a small town woman trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world.